This is Phantom Power. Welcome to another episode of Phantom Power, where I have conversations with brilliant people on the topic of sound. I'm Mac Haygood. I'm a professor and author who teaches and writes about sound. And today's brilliant guest is Warren Zanes. I think the most succinct descriptor one could use for Warren might be rock star biographer. In fact, Warren Zanes is a rock star biographer in more ways than one. He has experienced life as a rock star, as a biographer, and as a biographer of rock stars. I first met Warren in New Orleans sometime in the late 80s or early 90s. It was either a jam session that turned into a party or a party that turned into a jam session. Warren was then emerging from the wreckage of meteoric success. He'd been the teenage guitarist in a critically acclaimed band that briefly broke into the national popular consciousness and then just plain broke up. I didn't know Warren very well, but I think it's safe to say that Scholar would not have been on anyone's top 10 list back then for what either one of us would wind up doing. But life takes its twists and turns, and here we are. It's been really amazing to watch from afar as Warren has become one of our most erudite and entertaining public scholars of popular music. Among other things, he's been vice president of education and public programs at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, a consulting producer on the Oscar-winning film 20 Feet from Stardom, a producer on the Grammy-nominated PBS Soundbreaking series, and he conducted interviews for Martin Scorsese's George Harrison documentary, all while keeping up a solo recording career with collaborators such as the Dust Brothers. But I most admire Warren as a writer. Not to get too deep into the literary jargon, but technically I would call his writing really fucking good. He knows his craft from the sentence level to the paragraph level up through narrative construction. He's a great raconteur with an eye for detail, an ear for dialogue, and a way of weaving cultural theory seamlessly into a deceptively simple and entertaining story. His books include the first volume in the celebrated 33 and a Third series, Dusty in Memphis, his biography of Tom Petty, simply titled Petty, the biography, and Revolutions in Sound, Warner Brothers Records. His latest book is called Deliver Me From Nowhere. On its face, it's a book about the making of Bruce Springsteen's classic lo-fi album, Nebraska. But it's also about sound technology, musicianship teetering in a moment between the analog and digital eras, what it means to be in a band, and an unexpected relationship between the four-track cassette recorder and social alienation in the Reagan era. It's a thing of beauty, and I don't even like Springsteen that much. Or at least I didn't before I read Warren's book. In this interview, Warren Zanes talks about his journey, the new book, his craft as a writer, and as part of our mini theme this season on audiobooks, I asked him to talk about the process of narrating his own audiobooks and why he does so. And for our patrons, we'll have Warren's What's Good segment with something good to read, something good to listen to, and something good to do. You can join us at patreon.com slash phantompower. And now here's my interview with Warren Zanes.
All right, Warren, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you again. It's great to see you. And before I forget, I actually should have done this before we started talking, but can you remind me of that barbecue place? It was like in the Raleigh-Durham Research Triangle for this National Humanities Center thing. It was the last time I saw you. And you took me to some barbecue place that was amazing. And I cannot remember. Was it Gates Barbecue? Gates. I, I can't I can't remember. That's my favorite regional barbecue, but I can't remember specifically, so I'm, I'm probably getting it wrong. Um, Gates. Okay, I, I'm going to I'm going to at least put that on my list cuz I have been unable to remember and it was pretty amazing. Yeah, the, I could be thinking of a different place, but for me if if Brunswick stew is on the menu, you're probably <laughs> headed in the right direction. <laughs> barbecue wise more generally um but we had friends down in that area when we were on tour uh who would steer us in the right direction and then we also went on tour had the book road food good food by huh. jane and michael stern okay which I, I know gets continually updated but it was all about regional specialties so when you're out there in a rock and roll band on the road you're you're clinging to anything that keeps you in life and um, in good spirits and regional food is is right up there with um, sexual intercourse. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up being on the road with a band because I'm thinking for listeners to this podcast, probably a lot of people know you as this acclaimed rock author and public scholar. But maybe they're not as familiar with your early days in the Del Fuegos, which was this Boston area rock band. Could you talk a little bit about those days? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, my brother started a band, the Del Fuegos, uh, actually when he was at Oberlin. So it was three Oberlin students. And then they, they erased that part of the history because rock and roll is supposed to come from either the soil or the gutter, but not the campus. <laughs> so they erased <laughs> that history, moved to Boston, and they recorded one single, uh, printed 2,000 copies of it. And then uh, when I was 17, I joined that band. Uh, but it was th that single was really interesting. You know, it was recorded at an eight-track studio. Robert Plant, from Led Zeppelin, picked up a copy when he was in Boston, oh. talked about it in an interview in Rolling Stone, and Sam Phillips, who recorded Elvis Presley at Sun Records, also got a copy and talked about it in Rolling Stone magazine. And, and it's only in retrospect that I look back and go, that's, you know, this is pre-internet. Right. 2,000 copies of a 45 RPM record. And one gets to Robert Plant, and one gets to Sam Phillips. Uh, the magnitude of that didn't strike me, but I think this was a band that, you know, there was a lot of good fortune. Mm -hmm. And then we were, we were really the ones who ran that ship aground. You know, we were, we were young, uh, we were, you know, we three of the four people are over 30 years sober. Uh, wow. So that tells you 
that there was <laughs> there was some there was some you know rough activity going on back then. There was a lot of good music. There was a lot of good connection, but there was also more trouble than than good. I mean, it reminds me a lot of the replacements with you in the Tommy Stinson <laughs> role. I mean, well, well, let, let me say our first our first van tour went as far as Minneapolis, and you know, once in Minneapolis, we didn't have money for hotels at that point, so you stayed on people's floors, and um, I slept on the living room floor at the Stinsons' house. So, no kidding. Um, you know, yeah, Bob and Tommy were still living at their parents' house, and uh, the the drummer Woody Geesman and and I slept in their living room. And when they came to Boston, they slept at like our manager's house. And so there was a lot of crossover at a certain point. And the first issue of Spin magazine had Madonna on the cover. And then there was a big article about the Del Fuegos and the replacements. And it really boiled down to this thesis. The Del Fuegos are going to try not to drink as much so that they can be successful. And the replacements are going to try and drink more. Uh, <laughs> but the truth of it was everybody was drinking more. <laughs> well, speaking of drinking, another thing I remember from that era was that you guys had this, and I don't know if you even want to talk about this, but there was such a big thing about when y'all did a commercial for Miller Beer. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and it was sort of like trading on your authenticity. Uh, you know, it's kind of like gritty about rock and roll. I actually yep. thought it was a really good commercial, but the kind of outcry from rock diehards around that commercial it just seems kind of quaint now, but it was like a really sort of controversy for you guys. Could you maybe yeah. talk about yeah. what that was like and then what your thoughts are, to, you know, compared to today? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it absolutely needs to be contextualized because that was a, a pre-streaming environment, which is to say people were selling records. They were selling records. That was the the primary uh, kind of territory of money-making in the music business, selling recordings, uh, cassettes, vinyl, you know, CDs started to come in, but for us it was mostly cassettes and vinyl. Um, so people could make a living by selling product. And so the rock authenticity it was established on the grounds of what you could and couldn't do. And since money was being made selling product, not doing commercials was one of the things you didn't do to establish hmm. your authenticity. But, you know, Elvis Costello came to our defense in that time. And he said, here's what people don't understand. Young bands start in debt to record companies. That's where the story begins. You are in debt. It's almost like the company store on some level. So he came to our fence. Did the world care? No, they wanted to slam us for doing a commercial. And, uh, you know, years pass, we're into streaming and people can't sell product in the same way. You see much more in the way of artists doing commercials, um, backing products, uh, 
because you need some kind of revenue stream. Well, even, so, even before streaming, you know, I mean, Moby's play, I think I'm pretty sure every single song on that album was licensed to, you know, an advertiser. And, yeah, and this the became... Term, the terms changed. Yeah. It, it, was a, yeah. it was a historical shift. But, uh, to, you know, to, to be fair with the detractors, uh, you know, so this is a Miller beer commercial, um, which coincidentally, I'm not in it. Huh. They did. They did a cut of the commercial, and um, J. Walter Thompson, major ad agency, did this. Uh, it was a big deal, you know. It. Uh, I, I mean, I can say more about that. But then, when the liquor commission looked at the final cut, they said, "Who is the twelve-year-old drinking Miller beer in this commercial?" <laughs> they said that would be Warren, and nobody had thought like he's underage. <laughs> like, what are we even thinking? Which is uh, amazing to me. So they did a recut and I'm not in it. Uh, and so I would later say to when the backlash started, I said, oh, no, I did it on ethical grounds. I said, you can't. <laughs> and the rest of the band would look at me like, you rat. Uh, but here's here's part of the problem is the debut of that was Live Aid. You know, so so it was on oh, wow. it was Letterman, SNL, all these nighttime things. But Live Aid was the debut. So everybody else was raising money for famine oh. in Africa. Oh, and the God. Del Fuegos were selling beer. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So if you think of it in those terms, like, OK, that kind of justifies a backlash. But, you know, I, I have a feeling and I don't remember exactly, but I think I was like sort of in the eighth grade ninth grade something like that when i learned about you guys and i'm pretty sure it was through that commercial actually oh, you know my, like when you when you think about snl letterman live aid our name was just pumped out the main line and yeah the, the thing that you experience is uh you know we had we, we were doing well at that point and that gave us this surge but it gave us a surge among people who had just heard about us. So yeah. it's that it's that more um, short-term audience. And to build a long career, those people, if anything, will do more harm than good because they'll be there one minute and not the next. And the band then has to deal with the evacuation. And was it after that commercial that your song, I Still Want You, came out because I, I kind of remember that as sort of like your standout tune that got popular. I can't promise you that I've got the chronology right, but I yeah. think I still want you as before that. Oh, okay. Um, but that record, Boston Mass, was it was truly an album. Uh, so I still want you got, I, I don't know, it didn't get to top 40, but it got close. Mm -hmm. uh, but the album stayed in the top 200 album chart for like a year, which is, you know, really something. You know, in preparation for this, I went back and I listened again and I was just listening to that song and it's, it's got like this beautiful sparseness to it and it's kind of gritty but it's also kind of slinky with the Rhodes piano and 
And then it's something dawned on me that I wouldn't have been sophisticated enough to connect back when I was in eighth or ninth grade, but it was like, this sounds a lot like sort of damn the torpedoes era, Tom Petty. And of course you went on to be Tom Petty's biographer. Was that, was that an influence back at the time? Uh, oh, we were, you know, Petty and Springsteen. Well, let me say this. Let me, let me back up a little and say my mother had a good record collection. So mm -hmm. she had Stones, Beatles, Dylan, of course, but then she had Aretha Franklin. She had Pete Seeger, Ian and Sylvia, Josh White, the band. Um, there was a good record collection. And then my uncle lived uh, above us. You know, we were in one, one floor of a rental home. He was upstairs and he listened to what was even at that time called Oldies Radio. So from him, we were, you know, we were getting Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Buddy Holly. And, you know, my mother was giving us these more 60s staples. So we were listening to all the stuff that people like Petty and Springsteen listened to. Yeah. So when Petty and Springsteen came along, we saw traces of something we already loved. But these guys were for us. Yeah. So yeah, they, they both matter deeply, and uh, you know, I've seen pictures of my brother, uh, you know, from you know right when the band started, and you know, we were associated with punk, but there he is in his Tom Petty T-shirt. Uh, yeah. So we were we were, and he covered it, it's in in my book about Nebraska. I talk about my brother covering his high school textbooks with the covers of Time and Newsweek that Bruce Springsteen was on. And Springsteen, nobody knew Springsteen in New Hampshire at that time. So we were into these guys. So if our albums reflected that, you know, absolutely. By the time of our third record, Petty came and sang uh, a harmony on a song. And then yeah. we went and did a three month tour with him. So, you know, years later, when I become his biographer, uh, he knew me as a teenager, you know, which is wild, you know, as an yeah. experience, like I, I, I do feel really lucky. Well, so maybe we, we can talk about your transition from being a musician into what you've become. I heard you a few months ago on the Mark Marin podcast, and you were talking about these lost years in New Orleans. And I was like, that's when I knew Warren. <laughs> and then I thought about it. I was like, those years are kind of lost to me too, to be honest. There was a lot of drinking and stuff going on. But like, if I remember yeah. correctly, that is also when you started going to college. I think you went to Tulane. Am I remembering that right? No, Loyola. Oh, it's Loyola. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah totally yeah. forgot i i didn't even know tulane was 15 feet away from loyola until my <laughs> second year at loyola uh, how could but, i have but, made yeah, that mistake <laughs> yeah I, I i didn't um i didn't go down there to go to school i went down there um because i had gone i had passed through on a road trip from california and at dinner and there was a young woman at that dinner and I went, she's for me. And huh. so I went up to New Hampshire and I turned right back around 
And so I went there for what I call love. And I had already made some solo recordings. And um, T-Bone Walk, who has since passed, but was, was he was in the SNL band, but he was in Hall & Oates band and producing Hall & Oates and mm. was a, a staff producer at CBS. He had taken me to, you know, Donnie Einer, who was running CBS at that time and was, you know, kind of setting me up for, you know, getting into music as a solo artist. Right. And, and um, you know, I was young and, and stupid. And I thought when he reached out saying, man, I love this stuff. I want to help you. I want to work with you. I thought, well, great. You do all the work. Mm. And it's a, and uh-huh. I think that I think the Del Fuegos did this a little bit too. It's like, great, we signed a record deal. Now we can just wait for our ship to come in. Right. And the people who actually have careers, they never stop working. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when I went, you know, started taking classes at Loyola, it was, I really didn't know. I didn't know what I was up to, um, but I, I had wanted to keep being in music. And, you know, the moment that I really see is when I was working at Bicycle Michaels outside the French Quarter as a mechanic. And uh, we had been out on tour with Tom Petty, Mm -hmm. you know, for that three month tour. And then I heard the first single, I Won't Back Down, off of Full Moon Fever. And I'm, you know, I'm like my hands are covered in grease and I'm Uh fixing a Schwinn. And I'm hearing him sound like, whoa, he just found his next chapter. Like you can hear it in those tracks. This isn't the Heartbreakers, but that is Tom Petty. He's reinvented himself. And I'm looking Mm -hmm. at this grease on my hands going, you better reinvent yourself, fucker. You know? (laughs) And so is that why you ended up going to Loyola? Yeah. My alma mater as well, by the way. And is that also how you, so, okay. Because I remember seeing in a book of yours some thanks to John Biganay, a professor who I, I'm guessing we both had English yeah, professor. Yeah, yeah, no, Beck. I'm still I'm still in touch with him. He was the first guest on Phantom Power, the very first guest. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Oh well, I mean, because of his book on silence. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, he gave me a copy of that. Um, you know, John Biganay. I can't overstate how important he was to me, uh, you know, cause I, there I was exiting music and entering this, you know, creative writing program. And every time he had office hours, I was, I, I got there before he did. I was just sitting outside his office, like, and he never said, could you not come here as often? <laughs> uh, he never discouraged me, but at the same time he didn't, coddle me he let me be this he let me be what i was and gave me direction Mm. and uh really he was so the right guy for me and but then i got to the end of that creative writing program and i felt and this was self-imposed i thought you know if you haven't published in the new yorker by now you are not in the game and you are a failure and you better find another way. And I went in more into critical theory for two masters, PhD. And 
then came out the other side into music. Like I signed a solo deal with the Dust Brothers as I'm writing my PhD dissertation. And from that point forward, I was a, a hybrid. And the, the PhD you did at the University of Rochester? Yeah, in the program in visual and cultural studies. Okay. So it really put, it put the theory first, and it was up to you, the student, to figure what you would apply it to. So, you okay. know, you could be working in television, you could be working in contemporary art, you could be working in literature, um, and th but that wasn't the determining element that situated you in that department. It was much more the, you know, it was that moment in critical theory. And, th and this program was interesting because, you know, art history is a notoriously slow moving discipline. And what this program was doing was pumping out teachers who could go into art history programs and revitalize them, mm. uh, be, be the, the, you know, the representative of this other approach to art, which we were calling, you know, visual studies, visual culture. Yeah. So everybody, when I was there, I think they were at a hundred percent in terms of landing people in jobs, which is oh. astounding. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that could be sustained, but it was just this perfect moment of art history needed this, it needed reinvention from the inside, and this program was creating them. But but I went and you know got a record deal, and you know I did one university interview for University of Georgia in Athens, hmm. and um, I was in process there when I got the call from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and um, I took a job there as a vice president and taught at Case Western as a visiting professor. And when I say, you know, from that point forward, I was a hybrid, that job really kind of supports it. And from that point, you're also, I believe you contributed the very first 33 and a third volume on Dusty in Memphis. Well, well, they were nice and they gave me number one. So I, uh -huh. I can't remember there were either six or eight okay. uh, in the first series. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but Joe Pernice, who wrote the book on meat is murder, mm -hmm. um, we were set up by our respective managers on a kind of blind date with singer songwriters. And, um, you know, Joe became my son, Lucian's godfather. Oh, wow. Um, and he said in the middle of this coffee, he's like, you should do a book in this new series. I had a contract the next day and. Um, and, and I got to turn the ideas in my dissertation into this other thing. It was like my, my former brother-in-law said, it's a remix of your dissertation. And I, and I, I was like, that's, that's exactly right. What was the it's dissertation on? The title is globalization and a new regionalism. And I was really talking about how one aspect of globalization is this increased intercultural mixing mm. and with increased intercultural mixing comes a heightened anxiety about the other and 
in this heightened anxiety about the other, there are these various narratives that emerge about how good it used to be mm -hmm. when they weren't there. And, I, mm -hmm. you know, it could be Lake Wobegon, mm -hmm. which has a real anxiety about people passing through. Uh, yeah. And I looked at the Disney planned community in Florida, which hadn't even built yet, Celebration. Andrew Ross ended up writing a book about it. Um, I remember being at a conference talking about it. Andrew Ross came up and uh, was asking me some questions about it. And I was, you know, like the giddy graduate student. Ah, yeah. Next thing you know, you see he's got a book contract on the topic. It's like, <laughs> so this is how it works. Yeah. <laughs> All's fair in love and war. Um, yeah. You yeah, know, it's for not sure. like it was not like it was mine and mine alone, but I think it was the right idea. Yeah. You know, looking at the stranger, you know, the, the stranger as something. Look, it might be the biggest challenge we're facing right now. Difference. And how People, did this theme come through in the Dusty book? I, when I looked at a new regionalism and the narratives that were being generated in the face of anxiety, mm -hmm. the South is the region in the United States most associated with pastness. Mm -hmm. So the South had this special place. Like even when Disney uh, created Celebration, I went through their book that defined the community. Disney had a 51% share, so they were going to tell people how they would live. Yeah. But there's this extreme emphasis on the front porch. And architecturally, mm -hmm. it was a very Southern look. Mm -hmm. But people, you know, the emphasis on the front porch. And if their front fences, if they have white picket fences, let's say, if they went up to a certain height, after that height, it would have to be plexiglass. So there was this idea of like, we don't just get to know the neighbor, we get to see the neighbor. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. a very Foucauldian sense of, mm -hmm. you know, how does a community control itself, mm -hmm. you know, through vision. Uh, mm. But there was a Southern element to it. And, you know, growing up on rock and roll, growing up on, you know, like, look at the band, a bunch of Canadians with one guy from Arkansas singing about the South. Mm -hmm. Well, I connected with those Canadians because I grew up in New Hampshire and it's like, I had this idea of the South in my head from early on. And so that became part of it. And Dusty in Memphis as a recording is Dusty Springfield going to be a part of that Southern story. And Jerry Wexler, you know, from New York City is he's doing it and had been doing it for some time himself. And he makes that record with her. And so there's lots of notions of the fantasy of the South and how it was mobilized to generate a vision of pastness that kind of calms the anxiety of the future is coming and we're not going to recognize its face. So it's both the product of global capitalism and a kind of reaction against global capitalism at the same time. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, when people were looking at globalization, it wasn't as often through the culture lens. Right. And, and so that's what I was up to. Yeah, that's great. 
Well, maybe um, we can switch gears and talk about your most recent book, the Bruce Springsteen book, Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. I think maybe I should start with the confession that I'm not the biggest Bruce fan. I don't know what it is. Like, I feel like all the sort of white dudes from the Northeast that I know have that deep connection with Bruce and like the Southern white guys don't necessarily is have that connection. I don't know. That's like a, my pet theory. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate his lyrical genius. I mean, absolutely. But it's like on a musical level, I don't always connect. Although a song like hungry heart, it's a total jam, but I'm only saying that in order to say, I was really surprised by how much I loved your book. You made me care about, Bruce as a as a character, it drops into this really fascinating interstice, like between success and success, where this strange, quiet record comes out. And then you kind of build out this argument that actually this strange, quiet record was necessary for him to achieve this next level of success. Yeah. And I'm kind of torn by talking about wanting to talk about the ideas in the book, but also talk to you about how you did it. But maybe let's talk about the story first. Like what, what yeah. compelled you to write a book about a single album in this way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'm, I'm with you on everything you were saying there. Um, you know, one thing that compelled me was, uh, in, in my own life, I had identified with the desperation of the characters in the songs. Yeah. Whether consciously or not, I felt like I belonged among them. And so when I had trouble in my own life, uh, you know, whether with a, a parent, uh, a loss, a sibling, you know, divorce, I knew that I would reach for Nebraska. You know, there are certain albums you reach for when trouble is afoot. And that was definitely one of them. So yeah. I felt a personal connection. But I still, I thought it was one of the most profound, if not the most profound left turn in popular music. You know, so this is not to say he's the only person making muddy, unfinished, imperfect recordings and putting them out. Mm -hmm. But he's the only person I know of who's following up their first number one record that had their first top 10 single, following that up with a muddy, unfinished, imperfect recording. It was going to be difficult that you knew couldn't be played on the radio. It was just such, when people get to where he got at the end of the River Tour, mm -hmm. very few get to the platform that he was standing on, which is, you know, I've described it as, he was right where you can go from stardom to superstardom. He had the full support of a very developed fan base. He had the full support of a major record company, full support, priority artist. Uh, he's got a, a, a band, you know, they've got a sound. 
yeah. hard to achieve. Yeah. All of the elements are there. And, and where you should go is to another number one album that stays in number one longer, and you go from one single to, you know, three. Mm-hmm. And it's just, even I, like in New, New Hampshire, I, as a kid, a teenager, you intuitively know this. Because yeah. in, in some way, it, it, you know, I don't want to like bring it down by saying this, but it's like capitalism is in our bloods and, you know, in, in so many ways. Um, growth. This is what you do with an artistic career. You grow it. And yeah. so here's this artist who chooses to make a record that will make growth impossible. <laughs> impossible. Yeah. Uh, it will confound that audience that he's built. Many of them will say, it's not for me. And he's ready to take that gamble. It will confound the record company. His band isn't involved. Yeah. So I was looking at this going like, I know I'd never do that. Why did he? And I read his memoir, and Nebraska goes by quite quickly in the memoir. Hmm. And then he has this major depressive episode and starts getting help. And I just felt there's got to be a connection. And Hmm. and, uh, I believed in that enough. I also think it's a story about going from the analog to the digital. Yeah. Honestly. Which is so why I thought... there are a few different stories. Yeah, why it fits here. Why it fits in this show, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. there is like this real thesis about this album being at this pivot point between the analog era and the digital era. And yeah. also about the role of, you know, personal recording technology of... of yeah. Of the the TAC or the Tascam Porta Studio, could you maybe talk about that whole dimension? Yeah, I mean, he's born in the USA. Is if it's not the first, it's one of the first CDs. Yeah. Um, when he's recording, uh, so the T the, the TAC one forty four is four track multi track recording to a cassette. The next thing that he records on at home actually is a digital machine. Um, you know, there are going to be like stages of the the kind of advent of digital culture to get us to the point where people are looking at music as waveforms. Yeah. But the, the, the big move, you know, what happens once you're, we're in the age where recording studios are on like laptops like the ones we're on, which allows artists to take their recording home, you know, Pro Tools, whatever, Logic. Uh, People can make great sounding records in their bedrooms. You couldn't do that with a TAC-144, but you could take it to your bedroom. So the general move that he makes foretells a very digital future, even if that's an analog recording. That move of, I'm doing it in my bedroom. It's a revolutionary move. You know, I, I, I equate what Bruce did with this four track and, and making a record in his bedroom with 
the power of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 64. You know, the next day after the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, you got all these young people going, I can form a band. Mm -hmm. And, you know, suddenly amps and guitars and drum kits are selling like hotcakes. And kids are asking their parents not to park in the garage because they need that space. Yeah. And the garage band era is underway. With Bruce making this, you know, this major artist going into his bedroom to make his next record after a number one, I think a lot of young musicians went, whoa, they just cut out the middleman. Yeah. Like, I could do this. It was incredibly empowering, I think. Uh, what was he doing? He was just trying to save some money because he had spent so much out of his own pocket in the in the previous years when he when record companies you know not record companies singular he was always with Columbia and they would say hey Bruce you know you've been in the studio for four months we're not giving you any more money yeah he'd go out of pocket you know he's an obsessive record maker and he kept spending his own money and there he was in his early 30s having made five records and he was like something's got to change yeah like and the the TAC 144 was his answer. He was not intending to make a record. He just wanted to go do something a little bit more than just put songs down on tape. He wanted to start to produce them a little bit at home so that he could take it as a reference into a commercial studio. And so he's in this bedroom in New Jersey with an orange shag carpeting, and he's got his guitar, harmonica, He's running everything through like a, I forget, was it a, a space echo or something? It was like a... Some, it's, a it's an echoplex. An echoplex. Which, yeah, which simulates the, um, you know, the short tape delay that you hear like on early Elvis recordings. Yeah. You know, a lot of rockabilly has it. it you know, it's a, it's a great sound, but the, the, the crazy, the, the thing he admits is crazy, but he believes in is he he ma mixed everything down through this single effect. Everything is going is, through the echoplex. <laughs> yeah. It, does, it doesn't matter what it was. Everything he puts down, anything percussive, anything melodic, any voice, any instrument, all through one effect. So, and when I said to him, I said, that's definitely not how you're supposed to do it. Right. And he went, right. Yeah. And I said, but it sounds good. And he said, Right. <laughs> when you put the basic elements in front of me, he said, I know what to do. Uh, so he's got this tape, this cassette tape that's got all of this. It's got these songs on it, some of which wind up on Born in the USA. And he yeah. goes to the studio with the band now and tries to recreate these tunes. And then what happens? So this is the important thing. So he makes these four track recordings in his bedroom. He's not thinking that this is an album. They're just demos, just references for the studio. So if something uh, isn't perfect, it doesn't matter. If the lyrics aren't finished, it doesn't matter at that point. Mm -hmm. Then he goes into the studio, into the power station, and... Um, doing what he thought he was going to do, start re-recording them. 
So at that moment, in one of the first recordings that they do, uh, they already had the song Cover Me. Cover Me, he wrote for Donna Summer. Yeah. Quincy Jones is producing. And then they listened to it, and John Landau's like, please don't, that's his manager and then producer, please don't give this one away like you did with Patti Smith. Can we not do that again? And Bruce says, okay. So they got Cover Me. And the Patti Smith was because the night. Yeah. 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 But this is just to say, before they're even thinking about releasing this Nebraska stuff, they already got the first song for Born in the USA. Yeah. Then they go into the studio, and one of those bedroom songs was the song Born in the USA. And they cut it at Power Station. It's the single version that we know. They get it, and it's like, whoa. With that, Everybody's knocked out. With that big gated they, snare, that digital sounding snare that would become like the sound of the 80s, the Phil Collins thing. It's right there. The yeah. template's right there. Huge gated snare. The anthemic synth pads, those basic chords that he's playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this isn't a thing where you, it's like one, two, three, four, you know, and the whole band's in. This is like synth pads, drums. Yeah. Vocal. It builds to a rock band. It's a different sound, yeah. different than the river, but they've got that. And, you know, they're hearing that something special is going on. And they end up, you know, they end up having seven songs that go on Born in the USA, done. And Bruce puts them all on the shelf because he's looking at these other songs like Nebraska, State Trooper, Highway Patrolman, Mansion on the Hill, and going, why aren't these working with the band? Yeah. And he's he keeps going back to this shitty cassette going this is still better this is better than what i'm doing in a commercial studio it's better than what i'm doing with the band they tried to record him solo in at the power station he's like this cassette is still better and the way he describes the problem is he says every time i try to make it better i lose my characters, meaning, and this is key, it's the characters in the songs. So here's an artist we associate with rock and roll, with a band, an amazing writer, an amazing performer, but he is thinking in very literary terms. Like if I lose my characters, I lose the whole thing. And what's the whole thing? The whole thing is the story. Yeah. He's so focused on that. And his vocals, which, you know, he's got, he's got, a, you hear a lot of range on a record like Darkness on the Edge of Town. Uh, not on Nebraska. Yeah. It's much closer to a kind of talking layer. He's singing, but it's like, it's, he's not using that range to express. He, he's got the, the whole scene is quiet and he's focused on just letting those characters emerge so that we can see and hear their conflicts. Yeah, that's beautifully put. I I want to make sure that we save time to get into how you do what you do. So maybe I want to pull back now from the subject matter of the book itself and just talk a little bit 
about crafting a book like this. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's a healthy portion of our listeners who are academics. What are some key differences between writing an academic book and a work of narrative nonfiction that you're going to sell as like a trade press book like this one? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't mean to make uh, academics envious, but it is really fucking liberating not to have to think about footnotes so much. <laughs> I should probably think about it a little bit more, but you know, it's like I hand in the book and they're like, uh, what about, um, and I'm like, can we just not do that? And it's, it's more out of sloth than anything else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're making me envious. But I, yeah. I, that Dusty in Memphis book was really crucial for me because I got to turn this corner where I went from, um, you know, what people would call academic writing to what people would call popular writing. Mm -hmm. And I realized how much was the same for me. You know, I came out of this interdisciplinary PhD program and I loved it. And I still believe today I brought all of me who did that over to this, quote, popular, unquote, territory. Mm -hmm. I don't think I lost anything. I think if anything, I gained something because I could more, you know, justifiably reference the personal. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think... But, you know, at the same time, you know, like you're seeing people like, you know, like Zizak, uh, like, well, he's got some freedom. Mm -hmm. I found my freedom by going into the popular, but I learned a lot of my lessons in the academic. So the process is very different. Uh, I, I feel a higher level of freedom. But let me say this. Uh, there is the equivalent of the committee. Uh my agent and my editor. Yeah. And I wrote this book twice. Hmm. There's a version of this book that's twice as long. And I handed it in to them. And they both said, we don't think this is the book you meant to write. Hmm. And I had a new page one. I started over. And uh, I wrote the one that, that you read. And so... That's not to say that I have this freedom and it's all good from that point forward. I'm, I made, for the first time ever, I didn't share pages with anybody. I just wrote as I wanted to write. Yeah. And I won't do that again. Uh, and that was one of the things that, that led me to um, a point where, you know, I've got these crucial figures in my creative life saying, we don't think you meant to write this book. And so they got, they got me to where I, I really, I created a, a much sturdier narrative spine for the thing. And I think it became a more readable book. Uh, but for a minute there, I was thinking like, I want to have as much fun as Grill Marcus uh -huh. seems to be having in the, in the world of ideas. And, and so I did my version of that. And I think it was a harder read. And, uh, you know, I didn't step from the academic to the more popular to make reading a difficult experience for people. Right. I want it to be smart. 
I want it to allow them to think things they might not have otherwise, but I want it to be readable. Well, I and to me, and you know, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but to me, what makes it so readable, this book is so compellingly readable, is that it's really stories nested within stories. And then the ideas are nested within those stories. So, so like, just to give you an example, the title track of Nebraska, right? It's Springsteen gets inspired by the Terrence Malick film, uh, Badlands, which itself was inspired by the murder spree of Charles Starkweather and his girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate. And you give us the stories of the making of Badlands. You give us the stories of the first reporter to interview Carol Ann Fugate. Like there are all of these stories. And then sometimes I'm kind of like, where, where are we going with all of this? But then actually nested within all of that is like, there's a theory of the case here about, about alienation in the United States and, and that it, and how this record is expressing this kind of alienation, but you did it all through narrative. And, and that's almost like I can see your creative writing and your, your theoretical work coming together here. But the theory is just like, it's such a light touch. It doesn't make it any less profound. It's just a distinctly different way from the way an academic would approach the. That makes me very satisfied to hear because I hope that I hope that's happening, but like, like when I get into like one of these nested stories, as you describe it, um, I'm also, I'm trusting that the reader can see that, for instance, there's Charles Starkweather and it's the first televisual serial murder. And they're trying to figure out how to tell stories through using these cameras and they don't actually know how. Yeah. And then Charles Starkweather, he goes out as an image. And there's Bruce Springsteen struggling with the life of being an image. Mm. And, you know, so there's some there's some identifications between Springsteen and Starkweather that are like, whoa. Um, And I and I trust that some of this stuff the reader can process without me putting my finger right on it. Yeah. but all, but all the things happened. You know, Springsteen is a great subject because he's thinking deeply. He's not just sitting and watching a movie. <laughs> he's like watching a movie, seeing himself in it, writing a song. He's calling the Omaha television station that first reported it. He's like, you can't ask for a better subject. Well, let's talk about that because, you know, I teach my students about interviewing, particularly ethnographic research and doing interviews. And typically they're nervous. And I'm always telling them, look, people really appreciate the opportunity to be listened to. It's actually quite rare that anyone gets listened to. And, but in the case that, that the type of people that you're talking about, I mean, it's like the difference between Studs Terkel, like interviewing this every man about his day job and and like you interviewing the archetypal everyman, Bruce Springsteen, you know, like that's a total different power dynamic. So like, 
How do you get yeah. access? How do you get buy-in? I'm just interested in that. Yeah. Well, a couple a couple things. I mean, one, so yeah, people who have done a lot of interviews. Uh, if you ask, if you start talking to Bruce Springsteen about Born to Run or Born in the USA, many have been there before you. Yeah. So when you get off the beaten track, that that's always going to help. But you still have to ask about those other things. So you know. Th that makes a difference. But when I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I learned that. I started doing live interviews with people that would end when they had success. Mm -hmm. So talk about everything leading up to that, because most interviews started with success and went forward. And it engaged them, you know, at a higher level. Um, that reminds me of, uh, I, I remember reading uh, Joe Jackson, the English pop musician, his autobiography. And that's exactly how he wrote it. He wrote it right up until right before he had his first hit and it was over. He wasn't interested in talking about the rest. Yeah. Isn't that, and it's very effective. If you already love Joe Jackson, yeah. well, he's get here's like, here's what got me there. And, and he's obviously more engaged. Mm -hmm. Um, so you can do some of that, but like with Bruce, he's been asked everything about everything. Yeah. And, you know, my, uh, if I have a favorite moment in the Nebraska book, it's, and I, and I thought it was very bold what I was doing, but I believed that the story of Odysseus mapped onto his story and, and I couldn't let this theory go. And, um, it's a moment in an interview where I'm actually talking more than he is. I, I remember because I that. Have yeah. To, yeah, I have to put my theory up by telling the story of the Odyssey that fits into what I'm talking about. And it yeah. just, it fit into Nebraska into Born in the USA to me. It was about being invisible and being anonymous and being... Uh, you know, a stranger in your own home to being a powerful, you know, leader of people, leader of a home, uh, going one to the other. And I saw Nebraska into Born in the USA is that. So we sat and I'm telling him this. It's not that he didn't know the story of Odysseus. Right. It's that he was listening to me present a theory about his career with that narrative mapped onto it. So I was basically testing out an idea and, um, oh man, it just like paid off such dividends. And, and that's why I needed it in the book. And at the end, um, you know, he said, you know, something to the effect of, I just wanted to be invisible. Yeah. Like he basically came out and said, I was Odysseus returning home to Ithaca disguised as a beggar. And uh, in that case, it worked. I, I was talking him to him the other day and I had another pet theory. Hmm. And it was about, I think, you know, Queen is in a very important group, I think. Hmm. You know, a recording like Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, as a, as a song, as a recording, I think it's got a lot of the hip hop mindset into it. We can create this 
pastiche of elements and make it cohesive mm -hmm. as a pop song. And I think a lot of people were looking at Queen and I just believed that Springsteen takes in so much. He's such an, he, he's got such a high capacity to absorb. Surely he was absorbing Queen. And I put this theory out and he was like, I don't know their stuff that well. And I wasn't <laughs> listening to it then. It just felt completely flat. And, uh, and I said, well, when I was talking to Jimmy Iovine about um, Queen, he said, no, not Queen, but we were listening to ABBA. Uh -huh. And I said that. And then Bruce said, maybe Jimmy was. <laughs> you know, so both of them, you know, you, you got to put your neck out there a little yeah, bit yeah. and be, be prepared to fail in your line of question. Yeah. So they don't all go down. Like it was a magic moment for me when I did the Odysseus thing, uh, but it doesn't always go that way. I want to talk about you narrating your own audiobook. Um, I'm yeah. doing kind of like a little mini series right now on audiobooks and I really enjoyed, I listened to your, uh, audiobook version of the Nebraska book, thought it was fantastic. Can you talk about why you wanted to narrate your own work and, and yeah. what goes into that? Yeah. Yeah. G great question. And, and, and I definitely have thought about it because, uh, Dusty in Memphis became an audio book huh. and they just, they sent me one and I put it on and I could, I could listen to about a paragraph and that was it. I, I'm like, this is not the book I wrote. Wow. It's just not, I didn't write this book. It was the same words, but I wouldn't have read them like that. I felt like the person they hired him, like, did you meet him at like a joke shop or something? Like, <laughs> who, who is this guy? Uh, like, why didn't you ask me? And and so then when it was time for my Tom Petty biography to do the audiobook, my agent said, they're not going to pay you much for this. And it's terrible work. I recommend farming it out. And I said, no way am I letting somebody else read it because for it to be the book I wrote, it has to be me reading it. It's so different when you don't. And so I went in not knowing that process and it was rigorous. It was draining. It was intense. It was very emotional. And it was crucial that I do it. Uh, one of the upsides is that right when you're getting ready to promote a book, to take it to the world, to go public with it, you get that deep reading right beforehand. And the timing could not be better. So like with Petty, I was like, whoa, I felt it all. I felt every word go through me. I had a really good producer there guiding me, figured it out. Uh, and so when I came into doing this book, I was like, this is, I know this is going to be hard, but it's, I'm, I was so psyched. I was psyched for the emotion. I was psyched for the performance. Uh, I believed in myself as a reader of my own work. I knew I, I like, I do, I read Warren Zane's well <laughs> thought about it, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I, and, and I, when I was working on the, the Scorsese, George Harrison documentary doing interviews, uh, we would, the producer and editor 
would get together with me and we'd get our questions together. And the editor said, it's all about emotion. Yeah. I was worrying about facts. Like, I don't think this year is right. And he was kind of <laughs> like, nobody goes to see a film to see if you got the year right. They go to cry. <laughs> and I was it was a real turning point for me. Like, so in reading my own book, it was just like, there's emotion in these books. I'm gonna make sure that it gets delivered. Uh, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, I really think the emotion comes through in the way you read this book. Can you talk a little bit about the roles? Like who's in the room? I know that their audiobooks have a director. Um, yeah. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah. Um, and, and I should have their names right in front of me, but a great engineer and a great producer. And you need them. Like I could not do this sitting on my own. And I, and I feel bad that I don't have their names. Did in you, front of me did you go into the studio? I, oh yeah. 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 No, a, a studio here. Um, I think it's sound on sound. It's in Montclair, you know, and they, they're making, you know, it's the hallways are lined with gold and platinum records. Let's just put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was the real deal. And they set me up out in the recording room and they're in the control room. Uh -huh. And, you know, we got sound baffles around me. It's like my little house for a couple of days. And I've got a, a sight line to them. Uh, so that when I'm when I'm I'm in headphones and I'm looking through the glass, I need to be seeing the words and seeing them kind of simultaneously. Yeah. And you know we we worked pretty fast. They like I got to the point where I wasn't making a lot of mistakes, and um, it's just like uh, when you come out of the studio after doing full days of this. It, you know, it's like I, I'm dizzy. Wow. It's you're you're a little bit cross-eyed and it's you're drained. Um and it's a good time to like go like go walk your dog and eat some ice cream. <laughs> and so do you get notes on line readings? I, I assume since you're the author, it's a little bit different, but does the director say you yeah. Hey, can you slow that down or can you change the emphasis? I'm not getting the meaning from the way. You... Totally. Yeah. Totally. And, and, and those, so they'll either catch it in the moment, but more often like, okay, let's go back and hit these. And, and the, they're also like looking up, there's some words uh, or names that I've written that I'm not pronouncing properly. Right. So everybody's kind of working the whole time. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just like a sound issue of like I'm popping a P or something yeah. too much. Um, so they're catching all that. Everybody's in just, it's like hypervigilance. Well, I mean. I think that's where, that's where the fatigue comes in. The work paid off. You are Grammy nominated for your reading of your book. No. No? No. Uh, submitted. You know, it's a, it looks like that. You know, the, the publisher gives this thing for you to put on social media that makes it look like you got a Grammy nomination. Ah, uh, it's not. It's been submitted. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know what? I, I think I could submit my neighbor for, <laughs> you know, what he did with his leaf blower. 
like being honest. I hate to say it. Well, I mean, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and I think it's deserving of a nomination. I really do. I thought you did a great the, reading. The, thank you. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm proud of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any advice for people who want to do public scholarship, particularly around sound or music? Well, I, you know, I think about sound, music, fashion, uh, food. These are things that are so a part of everyday life that we tend to neglect thinking of them at a high intellectual level. And first of all, I think there's room for high intellectual discourse at an everyday life level. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be reserved for the academy. Um, but I think oftentimes it's, you know, it's funny with students, I'll really try, you know, like you chose the clothing that you wore today. You are making a statement about who you are. Yeah. Like, and it's almost hard to get them to that because the way in which we do these, you know, the way in which sound organizes our everyday life, the way in which we use music, use clothing, use food. Um, we are highly ritualistic people and we are, there's a kind of, you know, language to all of this that we're speaking, but we don't often step back to think about the you know, the nature of that language, the syntax of it, you know? So I just think like, take, you know, take a day and isolate one of those things. And it could be sound, you know, like how is sound, you know, a part of the organization of this mundane life that I'm leading? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think particularly as technology becomes more and more a part of our lives, like th there are a lot of moments in the day where sound is a primary issue. You just have to have this kind of analytical consciousness as you go in and, and look at it and then suddenly be your own anthropologist. Yeah. Like distance yourself from the life you're living so that you can have that external viewpoint that allows for a little analysis but put on the pith helmet and be your own anthropologist is what i say <laughs> that's great yeah. yeah great to see you yeah warren thanks so much for doing this i really enjoy talking to you yeah that was fun that was fun uh and i'm sorry that i got to eat and run man uh, <laughs> no worries uh, i'm actually going i'm i'm doing i'm doing talking to Roy Bitten from the E Street Band. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, so you're still on that beat. Still on that beat, yeah. All right. Yeah, tell you more soon. All right, look forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Good right. to see you. All right, good to see you. Take care. And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Huge thanks to Warren Zanes for being on the show. Today's show was edited by Niso Sasha and yours truly. Transcript and web content by Caitlin Fan. Please join us in a couple of weeks when my guest will be theorist of noise, Marie Thompson. 
Take care, and I'll talk to you then.